morning, and we want to turn to a great passage of the Bible. They're all great, but um, this is a great passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Tim Johnson's out this morning. We're so grateful for Ryan uh, leading our worship uh, service today. We want to give him thanks for that. We appreciate it. And uh, as we open up our Bible, we have been in a series of messages on handing down your faith, and we've said that's one of the hardest things in the world to do. In fact, somebody said one time, parenting is hard, and then you die. Well, that, it sort of feels like that sometimes when you're, when you're a parent, and you're wondering, are you doing the right things? Are you going the right direction? You know, am I, should I send my kids to Christian school? Should I homeschool? Should they go to a secular school? Am I being too strict? Am I being too lenient? What, what about what the Bible says? It's almost like you feel like you have to be a child psychologist to raise your children in the right way. And yet, we do know of some, many, many child psychologists that have also failed or they feel like they failed at parenting. One thing you need to understand, parenting is influence, as D. James Kennedy once said. But it's only influence. Your, our young people, our children, our grandchildren are going to make their own decisions in life. But the question may come up, what can we do to make it where it's the best possible situation for them to, for us to hand down our faith and for them to become not only believers but following hard after Jesus Christ? Sometimes we just go about in behavior modification. We said that last week. But it's a matter of the heart. I gave the illustration last week about uh, when I was growing up in Bogart, Georgia, right outside of Athens, Georgia. You pull up in our driveway, there was an uh, apple tree there just growing wild. It got really big, and all it had was green, sour apples. My dad would take a bite of it and just throw it away just every once in a while just to sort of test uh, the apples. Well, one thing he could do, of course, is to prune it and to fertilize it and to make sure it's watered, and it would grow up all over again. But he never really bothered to do that. He just every once in a while, he'd take a bite and throw it away. It at least brought a little shade to the car, you know, as he parked under it. So that's all he did. Or he could have done something like what we said last week. Go to the grocery store, buy some beautiful red, delicious apples, and staple them to the tree. <clears throat> now, we said if he did that, everybody would come by and say, wow, what a marvelous gardener John Mercer must be. And they got up a little closer and they would say, well, what a crazy guy this has to be. All he did was st staple uh, apples. And of course, since they're not hooked onto the vine, they don't have any life. They just look good. Paul Tripp would say that we would be apple staplers as parents. All we're looking at is the outside. As long as they behave correctly, as long as they don't embarrass us in any way, maybe, everything's going to be okay. And then we wonder, when they graduate from high school and go off to co college, why only 6% of those estimated stay in the church once, while they're in, at least while they're in college. You say, well, I, I gave it to them. They had it when they left, and they're going to be okay. But many people would say, and sometimes I think the Bible uh, is correct on this. Oh, right, the Bible's always correct, but the Bible backs this up by saying this in the scripture. For no one tree, one, no tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart, Jesus said, produces good fruit. And the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, is the mouth speak. 
is, is uh, speaking. And so here we find in the scripture the key to it all. It's the heart. It's the heart of the matter. You and I look at the behavior on the outside, but it takes a change of heart on the inside for a young person to carry this on and their Christian life on uh, down through their life. How do we really make this happen? Because, I mean, after all, only God can change the heart. We know that about salvation. You can talk about all the laws that you want to in the Bible, and it's necessary. The laws are necessary. The boundaries of life, the limitations of life are necessary in order for us to know God, to follow God, and do the right thing. But unless it comes from the heart, we know that it's just apple stapling, and that's really all it is. We believe in boundaries. We believe in limitations. We believe in rules in the home. We'll talk more about that next week. But really, if you're going to have a life change, that law, that rule must get into the heart. How do you do that? How do you, I want to say, assist the Holy Spirit, but how do we do our part in what God has called us to do in order for the Holy Spirit of God to work in someone's life, to have real apples coming out on the tree and not just stapled ones, or for that matter, green apples? How do we prune the tree? How do we fertilize the tree? How do we water the tree? How do we cultivate the fruit? How do we do that? I want us to look in the scriptures of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as we look at this, we understand that this is the most popular uh, passage in the Bible's history. It's called the Shema. And Jewish uh, children uh, growing up, even the Orthodox faith today, would recite this and learn this. Here's what it says, and I'm going to begin with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is, the Lord is one. And look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Somebody say it. Heart. And with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your and you, your heart. Say that with me. Your heart. <clears throat> say it for the TV. Your heart. All right. That was not exactly in unison, but some, somewhere there's a harmony in there. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit on the house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. He's saying, look, this is what you ought to believe yourself. You ought to believe, Lord, your God is one God. Hundreds of, 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 of gods in the Egyptian community. Now, what's happened in the book of Deuteronomy is the Israelites were captured uh, by the Pharaoh in Egypt for many, many years. They have escaped that now. God has brought them out into the wilderness, about to go into the promised land. And then we find in, in the book of uh, Numbers, uh, a couple of books before this, one book before this, they had disobeyed the Lord. Forty years now, they had stayed in the wilderness. That generation that disobeyed the Lord has now passed away. There's a new generation that's come up, and now Moses is about to give the law all over again to this new generation. And the one command as he begins to give the law to them, is that you need to understand, you need to love the Lord your God with a heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord your God is one God, and you must pass this down to the next generation. We're going to be looking at this passage a little bit again, but then we're going to be looking at Psalm 78 in just a moment, and we're going to see how after years of not doing what they need to do, the result of it. First of all, I want us to look at the heart. What is the heart? Then what can we do? What can we do as our part to cultivate that heart? And then how does it work? When does it work? When does it work that your child, your young person, actually has a changing of the heart rather than just behavior modification on the outside? Let's look at these three things through the Word today. First of all, <clears throat> what is the heart? 
Notice again this command that was given. He says, well, all your heart. Now, we have people today saying, you know, look, pastor, you keep saying, you know, invite Jesus into your heart. What does that mean? The muscle, the blood pumping? What does that all that mean? Well, the Bible tells us about the heart 960 times. And so anytime you look in the Bible and you see something there for 960 times, you can bet it's important. And the heart is really the core of the person. It's the core of who you are. We know from the scripture it includes the mind, the will, and the emotions. And maybe the soul and the spirit sometimes in certain passages. It's who you are. So when you receive Christ into your heart, you're doing that into your life and who you are and the base and the foundation of everything that you're about. And the heart, being the core, controls us in, in this life. Luke 6, 45, we read this again. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. You've been around people before, and maybe you've done this. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, and you probably shouldn't have. And I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. You meant that. That was in your heart, at least for the moment. Maybe it was a, 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 a time of anger. Maybe you were just trying to win an argument. You really don't mean it. But at that moment, you meant it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have overflowed from your heart, from your being and who you were. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, 23, keep, watch over, keep your heart with all vigilance or diligence for from it flow the springs of life or the issues of life. What you're about <clears throat> determines how you're going to decide on how you solve the issues and problems and all the things going on in your life. It springs forth everything that you are about. Now, the problem with the heart, whether it's your heart or your child's heart, is that the Bible tells us there's sin in the heart. Once Adam and Eve sinned against God, sin came into the world and death by sin. And the Bible says because of that, we've corrupted the part, the core of who we are in trying to make those decisions, trying to say the right things and do the right things. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Now, one version says wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, if you were alone on a desert island and you had no rules, no book to go by, <clears throat> no one to be accountable to, how would you live? Well, I read a story back in college, supposedly a true story, about, and you know, this was, you know, back in college, I'd say 10, 15 years ago. Um, not really. Um, but anyway, I read a story back in college where Supposedly a tr true story, three guys had a small or, or big, a small ship or a big boat wreck, came up on an island. Nobody was there but the natives, but somehow they made their own moonshine. They had drugs from plants there, and there were no morals there. And so they had any woman that they wanted that was on the island. Among those three men, two of them died very early in the process. Their, their wickedness, their evil heart just took them down a place where they could not come back from. And because of that, they died. The third guy was very concerned. He'd been doing the same thing the other two guys have been doing. And he was about to go down that path as well, that final, final uh, steps, those final steps. But he found a Bible. So evidently, a missionary had been there before. He found a Bible. He began to read it. And before he got to the end of the Bible... 
he gave his heart to Christ. And he really turned the whole island around for Jesus Christ while he was there. But what did they do when they got there? No rules. The heart is desperately wicked. It's sick. And so how do you take a sick heart and mold it the way the Holy Spirit wants it to be molded? How do you prune that, that tree in order to grow great fruit? I want us to look at what do you do? What do you do? What is your part? What is my part? <clears throat> I want you to notice Judges chapter 2 once again. And for those of you who are with us for the first week, I just brought this uh, passage out last week just to say this, that within three generations of the command given in the book of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel did not do it, and the third generation was not following the Lord. In fact, the first generation born into the promised land where they were parked, they, last, they went and they lasted there and still there today. The first generation did not even know the Lord. Let's read the passage. Judges chapter 2 and verse 8. Or verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, <coughs> the people of Israel each went to the inheritance to take possession of the land. So Joshua now is kind of older. They've gone into the promised land, and all the tribes have sort of taken the land they were going to take at that time. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him. Verse 10. And all the generation that were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so I know some of you, many of you have seen this illustration before of the three chairs. I've probably done it more than uh, uh, probably 20, 25 times. So I'm not going to do that today. All right? No three chair illustration. I'm going to do the, the illustration of the three stools changes everything. Before you say, oh, I've seen this before, God has um, revealed something to me actually this week, uh, in the past two weeks, but particularly this week, that I think solidifies all this and gives us the missing link to what we've been talking about all these several years. The Bible says this. There's three generations in this passage. There was Joshua. We're going to let him be represented by this nicer chair, and he's a first chair guy, <clears throat> The next generation comes along. They're called the elders. And uh, these elders then produce the next generation, the first generation in the land of Canaan. And that generation did not know the Lord at all, the Bible says. So according to uh, uh, Bruce Wilkinson in one of his books, he basically put down these characteristics, and I've changed them a little bit. <coughs> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat. Um, first chair, second chair, third chair. First chair's passionate about God. Second chair is kind of passive. Third chair is indifferent. So these are the characteristics. Now, here was the guy by the name of Joshua. And we can look at several different illustrations of the Bible about this, not just one. Remember the story of David. David was the king of Israel, and he was a man after God's own heart. He had a son by the name of Solomon. He was a compromiser. I mean, this, this second chair, the passive, not knowing whether Solomon is, is in heaven or not, we don't know. No, he knew about God, but he was compromising. He, he married all these women, and they were from different countries just so he could make peace with them and not have to go into battle. And he compromised with their gods and let them worship their gods. He began to worship their gods. He was very compromising. Whatever was convenient, and he compartmentalized their life. This is, this is the idea of the second chair. The first chair, on the other hand, 
first chair believer, saved, committed, passionate for God. They know God intimately, and they're under the lordship of Christ. This would really talk about Joshua, David, other places. Abraham, for example, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. You know, Jacob later followed the Lord in his life. Third chair. You got first chair, you got second chair. Look at the third chair, the third generation. Not saved, doesn't know God. They're confused, uncertain about truth. And really, it's, it's what, how, how is life affecting me, which is really typical of someone who is not a believer anyway. So here's what you have. You have this person right here, first generation, really following hard after God. Bruce Wilkinson, in his surveys, would say most first chair believers produce second chair people. He, would, he, he calls them saved, but he's not really trying to make a theological statement here. Really, here's the problem. Sometimes you're in the first chair, sometimes you're in the, you just kind of go back and forth, depending on what is really first in your life. Anybody that says Jesus Christ is always the Lord of my life either doesn't understand it or they're just kind of lying to themselves. So you kind of go back and forth. But every time you go to this chair for any length of time, it hurts your Christian life and also hurts you in your parenting as well. So we have this. They usually produce people here. These people usually produce these people. Now, this, the the passive one, many people in our churches today are right here in the second chair. What do they want as a child? They want to raise their children up to be second chair believers, if they're a believer. They don't want this. My goodness, if somebody comes along in their home, a teenager that's on fire for Jesus, it's just going to convict them. They want somebody they can go fishing with or or hunting with or play golf with, hang out with, drink with, whatever. They just want somebody like them, not some holy roller, if I can use a 70s term. And they certainly don't want their child to be lost without Christ. But unfortunately, here's the problem. Children copy the values of their parents 60% of the time. So if that's true, then this number one value here is easy to see is Jesus. But the problem to this is the value of Christ and the place Christ comes in life, maybe second, maybe third, maybe fifth. And young people, our children, very seldom copy the thing we value second, third, fourth, and fifth. They might, but it's just really... Uh, an iffy situation at best. And so why doesn't, here's my question. Here's the question that I've had for 15 years. Why does this person, or or rather, this person not inspire their child to usually end up in the first chair? Remember, it's always influence. It's never your decision to make for your child. You can't beat yourself up. It's their decision. But why do they decide for this instead? Why? Well, again, let's come back to that word value. What do you value? Well, they look at your life and they say, well, they value Jesus Christ. They value uh, walking with God and going to church. They're sitting right here. It's plain as day. Oh, they make mistakes. They're not perfect, but they're sincere. You, You become mature enough in your teenage years to realize they are sincere. But is it attractive? So I said, well, you know, I see my parents or my grandparents sitting in the first chair, but boy, they don't seem to be too happy about it. You know, they don't, they don't seem to have any joy in their life about it. You see, we, when we value something, 
the value is shown by the fact that it satisfies us and brings joy to our life. And so they look at you in the first chair and think, oh man, that, that seems to be a boring life to me. It seems to be kind of legalistic. You know, I look at my parents or grandparents, I look at them and I see that they're really following God and they value that and they pray and they read the Bible. But, but so what? You see, the number one question we, need to, we always ask ourselves is why? So what? Why? Simon Sinek wrote a book on asking the question why. Why in the world? Whether it's, it's really not about the family, it's more about business and, having, and, and, really, uh, and asking people to follow your beliefs. And the first question that you have when you present a new idea, they're asking the question, why? Why would you follow the Lord? So what? You're following the Lord, and that's all fine and good, but you know, I think I can get to heaven just fine sitting right here, and I can live the way I want to and do what I want to do. What's happened? It's unattractive. And if I w- there was something, one thing that I would realize as a parent, as a young parent, before I even had children, is that this was not only important to sit in this chair, which I've all, my, my wife and I have always tried to do, but I would have hoped that I could have realized that I needed to make this attractive. I need to make it joyful. You say, well, I don't want to just pretend joy. Well, listen, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, peace, uh, goodness, um, and self-control. So the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God gives us the capacity for joy in our life, and even the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so what happens? They look at it, and they say, well, boy, you know, this really irritates me. It just irritates me, the young person says. I want to live the way I want to live and do what I want to do, but I look at my parents, and I know they got it together, and I know they're happy with the Lord, and I know I'm never going to be happy unless I follow God. It just won't be there. And so the value is shown by the satisfaction, maybe success, and I always figured that. I saw that. Hey, don't... My kids see how we're blessed in life. Well, that's all great, but is it really making us happy, joyful? Or is it maybe a world of complaint, a world of being critical? Somebody's not living the way you're living, so you're kind of critical of that. A world of arguing about religion and politics and different things. In other words, there there just seems to be no contentment here. When you handle a problem, oh, you handle it, all right. And God gets you through it, and praise God for that, and you did the right thing. But boy, not, not with a trusting, joyful, peaceful heart. It's just not attractive to many young people. Now, they may see this and think, oh, that, that's where it is. That's where it is. But they still make a decision to go the other way. But it's very difficult to do that when they see that you really do have the answers. And so we find demonstration. Young people will do more what we see, more what what they see rather than what they are hearing in life. And so they ask the question, so what? Why? Why in the world do you feel that way? Why, why Why are you so happy all the time? Okay, let me show you why. That's where the instruction comes in. Deuteronomy 6, we read just a few moments ago, you shall teach them diligently, what? The law of God, to love God with all their heart, and shall talk of them when you sit on your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Uh, Psalm 78, I promised you I would look at that very quickly, 
But in Psalm 78, he gives something here that is very, very insightful. He looks and says, over the hundreds of years, we have not passed our faith down to the next generation. And it's been horrible. Even in the book of Judges, for example, that we read just a few moments ago, seven different times a nation came in and conquered the nation of Israel because of their sin, because they failed to pass down their faith in the next generation. God would rescue them as, as they would repent and make things right with God, and they would follow God again and have the victory in God, but they wouldn't pass it down to the next generation, and they would just go the same way all over again. He's, here's what he says in Psalm 78. Verse 3, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. So what do you need to do? You teach them at least these three things right here as he just sums up Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says this, you teach them, first of all, the glorious deeds. And here's where we get our, our Hebrew word praise from, the praiseful deeds. You want to bring them to a point of worshiping God, the Lord our God. He says, one God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first thing we need to teach our children is to love God. We, we can't trust anyone that we don't feel like loves us, so we need to teach them that God loves us, and we need to love him in return. Then he says, the power and his might. He says, teach them about the power of God, the, one, the great things that have happened in the past, the parting of the Red Sea, the bread falling from heaven, the water coming from a rock. You say, well, those things haven't happened to me. Yes, but you've had answer to, answers to prayer. Share that. Share about your salvation story. There are some, there are some young people today that have no idea how their parents came to know Christ. They've never heard this story. And if they've heard this story, they've heard it once. And the Bible says repeated over and over and over again. The power of God. How are you going to trust God for the future if you don't recognize the fact that he's done so many powerful things for you in the past? Then he says, not only teach them about the might, but the wonders. The wonders of God. The blessings. Somebody says, well, you know, somebody's sitting right here, a young person. Look what God's done to me. You know, I don't, I, I'm not you know, an actor, model type. I'm not a great athlete. I can't sing. Great God could have made me all that. And the parent comes along and does nothing, maybe, or, or tries to encourage them best they can, buys them an ice cream or something. And, but this one over here needs to say, yeah, but look what God has done for you. I understand all that. I understand people are not standing in line to serve you. But look what he's done. Look what he's Look what he's done for me. Maybe at a different time, but nevertheless, to show them constantly. Look what God has done, the blessings of God. We'll look over a little bit more about this last week on who to love, who to trust, what to avoid on next week. But I, want you to, I don't want to miss the point here. There's a teaching moment, but there's also an application moment as well. It says here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, teach them as you sit in your house. Oh, it says, first of all, talk of them. So you're just going to, and this word is conversation, where we get our word conversation from. It doesn't mean to preach to them. It means to converse, to have conversation. And then it says, he says, sit in the house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, as you go. You teach them, you apply things as they go. Robert Fulham, Fulham said, don't worry about children ever listening to you. Worry that they are always watching you. 
And so how do you teach them? Well, say at school. They come home from school and say, I've been suspended for three days. Well, what happened? Well, it was all my teacher's fault. All my teacher's fault and the principal's fault. I don't know what they were thinking. So you, as a hero parent, put on your cape. Fly down to the school. Burst in as the doors fly open. And you're going to straighten this thing out. The next thing you know, you're pulling your child out of school, putting them in the good school. <clears throat> One that you will support financially, maybe, so they'll, they'll, they'll let things go a little bit. What does your child learn there? Your child has learned I can get away with things if I lie. If I lie, I can get away with it. But what about this? You go down to the school, you find out that it's all right. That's exactly what happened. So what do you do? You say, well... Look, when you do something wrong, you got to realize growing up there's pain involved. When you get older and you take responsibility for your own life as an adult, every time you do something wrong, there's pain involved. There's pain. And so you're going to have to suffer pain there, but you're also going to be punished at home too because you disobeyed us as well. Now, what if it's all wrong? Maybe, maybe he was just framed for it because he was with the wrong crowd. Well, then you still have to accept the punishment because he learns there that life is not always fair. The world's just not fair. But when he gets home, he doesn't get punished. But rather, a lesson is learned. Look, maybe it's who you're hanging around with. Use it as a teaching moment in their life. What about nature? First service, Ryan mentioned the fact that uh, his son was looking up to the moon and said, God, you know, Daddy, God made the moon. You can teach your child by nature. They're, you can teach them from making a meal about where everything comes from, where they look at a meal and never think again of anything but God when they're actually cooking a meal. The nature of things. You can teach them in your financial situations. Instead of saying, look, you know, we're going to skim here and skim there and, and, and we're not going to do this. We're not. No, you, you come together as a family and you say, look, we're going through some financial strain. We need to go through this together. We need to honor the Lord with his, but also budget to where, to where we can make it. And we're all going to have to make sacrifices. That's a learning, a teach, teaching experience. But they ask why. You know, why should I do what you tell me to do? Okay? You tell them. And if it comes out that they feel that you're doing it for their benefit... They should understand that. Otherwise, their goals for their life are totally different from yours. And that's another situation altogether. But if they look at your life and say, okay, you, you want me to be godly, okay? You want me to be happy. You want me to be successful. And this is the reason why you're doing what you're doing. They'll usually accept that. But if it comes out, well, the reason I want you to do this is because I want you to serve me. You know, parents do that all the time. I'm the biggest one in the house. And so you're going to do what I tell you to do. When I was growing up, I know this is going to really shock a lot of you. Tell them my age, but when I was growing up, we, we didn't have remote, a remote control. No iPhone, no computer, no Xbox or whatever they're playing now. It keeps changing, so I don't ever know. We didn't have, we didn't have remote control. I was the remote, remote control. You know, my dad was sitting down, sitting down. He'd been working all day. Get up and change the channel, son. So I'd go over there, I only had three. How about this one? How about this one? I only had three. And so 
You know, go wash the dishes, go mow the grass, go do this. Hey, hey, I'm king around here. I mean, after all, all of a sudden now, I don't know if you, you want what's best for me or not. Or, look, I'm telling you to do this because you, are, you embarrassed me. And don't you embarrass me again. When they see the motive not matching the action and what you're trying to teach them, that's, that's not good. Not good. Okay, so we give them instruction. And then lastly, we make intercession for them. We pray for them. Because, dear friends, you cannot change. Listen, you cannot change the heart of your child. You do what you can do, but only the Holy Spirit can do that. We see that at, at salvation. All the rules in the world, all the boundaries in the world in the Old Testament could never save anyone. It took the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. He ascended up into heaven. He says, I must ascend up into heaven so I can send my Holy Spirit to come and live within your heart. And the very moment that you and I receive Christ, we are changed. We are forgiven. The Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of us to change not just our outward behavior, but to change our desires, to change our heart, our core of who we are. There's a verse in the Bible, 3 John 4. It says this. I have no greater joy than to hear of my children are walking in the truth. Great verse. Is that a promise? No, it's really not a promise. It's really not. But there is a promise here that I have, I have access to the joy of the Lord. And according to this book, 3 John Bringing up my children in the truth brings, should bring me joy, so I claim that. God, I want to be a, a joyful Christian, and I want my children to be an, a, an avenue of which I receive that joy as they walk in the truth. See, we can pray for our children. I remember uh, a situation when I, uh, I was 22 years old, and I was preaching my first set of revival meetings at this uh, little church, Sandy Creek Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia. And um, one of the first nights, one of the first nights, this man came down the aisle. He was, he was crying. I could barely understand what he was saying because the instruments are in the back. I couldn't, I couldn't make out as he was crying. So we sat down with him after the service was over. He wanted to give his heart to Christ. And what brought him to that church that week, kind of lived in the neighborhood, but what brought him to the church was that he found out his daughter been acting really strange. His teenage daughter was a drug addict. She had left home, didn't know where she was. I have no idea where my daughter is. 17 years old, don't have a clue. And he was just crying. He said, would you pray for her? Would you pray for her? I've been invited her. I told her I was coming to church tonight last time I saw her. And, uh, and, and or, or going to come this week. And would she come with me? And she, she wouldn't. Would you pray for her? We prayed for her that Friday night. There was a young lady during the invitation. I think the only person that came forward that night came forward. She came forward crying. And it's not that I've forgotten about the whole situation. I had not. But in, in the whole thing about preaching the message and pouring out your heart, you just don't think about the particulars sometime. And she came and I, I heard the name. Same last name. And she was staggering down the aisle obviously kind of strung out a little bit. And she said, I want to give my heart to Jesus tonight. And it was the man's daughter that we prayed for just a few nights before. 
You see, prayer really can make a difference. It does make a difference. Interceding. Now, when does all this work? I've got to close out right now. When does all this work? How do you know it's working and it's not just behavior modification? Well, first of all, when does it work? When a person comes under conviction. When a person comes under conviction. That time in their life where they say, I see myself now. At least in this area, I see myself enough. Like God sees me. And what I I look at, I'm fooled. I, I didn't know that I was like this at all. I didn't know who I was. I'm under conviction that I need to do something about it, and Jesus becomes the answer. Now, that's difficult because, folks, we all have blind spots. Why do you think when you go to someone and say, look, I really want to talk to you about a weakness in your life, they don't see it at all? They, can't, they just can't see themselves. And they think you're intruding on their life. They think you're being unfair. They think you're being mean-spirited in some way. You're misjudging them. But really, there are, time, there, there are things in our life that's, that's obvious maybe to everybody and not to us. For years, my, my wife tried to tell me, well, you know, your, your facial expressions don't always match what you're feeling. And I just didn't see it, didn't see it, didn't see it. But let me tell you something. My facial, and, and this is part of the, the thing where I wish I would have exemplified more joy at home. Because my facial expression, hey, my facial expression of concern is the same facial expression I have for a blank look. My blank look is the same facial expression I have for anger. My anger is the same expression I have when I'm really deeply thinking about what I'm going to preach about. And what I'm going to preach about is the same facial expression, basically, is watching a college football game on Saturday afternoon. So as someone said, man, I wouldn't want to play poker with you because I never know what you're thinking. That's a weakness in my life because I can't tell, I can't tell people what I'm thinking in my facial expression. It's always been a weakness. But at least I know I have it. But back then, I, I didn't know I had it. I wouldn't see it. All of us have those uh, times in our life where we just need to come. And the only one that can really convict us of that and show us that is the Holy Spirit. A person changes when they come under conviction. A person then changes, changes when they confess their sin, when they confess it. It's one thing to be convicted. It's another thing to be under confession. I remember there's been two times in my life almost the exact same thing happened. And this time it happened when I was going to college. I was talking to someone that was college age. Weren't in college at the time, but they were college age. And uh, we kind of grown up together. I'd gone one way. At that time I was already began to follow the Lord. And then he went another way. And we were talking. And he says, one thing about it. He said, it really bothers me. It kind of haunts me. And that is you have peace in your life and I don't have it. And it bothered him. And eventually, he would make his decision for the Lord. But you see, people are looking. They're watching all the time. But it's one thing for him to feel so convicted about the fact that he says, I know that I'm doing what I'm doing is wrong. It's another thing to come to the place in our life where we confess it. I remember the story about, about Peter. You know, there he was. He was on a boat coming in, had been fishing all day, hadn't caught a thing. And then uh, Jesus uh, met him at the, uh, at the dock, and he said, how, how was your day? He said, didn't catch a thing. That's all right. You know, just didn't catch anything. Well, he made a, a living by fishing. He needed to catch something. And Jesus said, throw your net on the other side of the boat. He said, well, Lord, 
you know, I'm the fisherman here, you know, you're, you're the rabbi. Um, but I'll do as you're bidding. And he threw the net over the side of the boat, and immediately a catch came in so big it began to break the net so he couldn't pull it up on the boat. And it was a miracle, and he, he was just thinking, wow, you know, look what's happening. He turned to Jesus to rejoice, and immediately his eyes met Jesus. He fell to his knees, and he said, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Confession. He saw himself through the eyes of Jesus as he really was, imperfect as he was. And instead of feeling down about it, he just simply confessed it. I am a sinner. Then what happens? The result is there's a confidence in God. Psalm 78, 7 said this, so that they should set their hope. This is the so that. This is the result. Set their hope. That's their faith. That's the the hope of things uh, in the future. That's their faith, their faith in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments, that, that hope, that change of life that would put their confidence in God that they, your children, we would first and then our children would say, you know, I'm better off trusting God than going my own way. I'm better off trusting God than trusting myself. I'm better off trusting God, following him than following my own path. And when that happens, change has occurred in the heart. And because of that, behavior and life will permanently change as well. And so what about us? What about you? Abe Lincoln said, before you train up a child in the way he should go, you have to go that way yourself. Are you going that way? Are you sitting here with joy or sitting here? And it's just a kind of a struggle, commitment. You're in there. You're tenacious. But it's not attractive. Or are you just sitting here? That's where most church members are sitting right here. Most across the world. Right here. Compromising. Or even here. And you know, this person may not know that they're not a believer. This person does know. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.